You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Episode 21. We are closing in on the coveted episode 26, which means we'll have been doing it for six months straight. Before we jump in and before I introduce our very special guest today, everybody knows the rules. Drop in where you're dialing in from. I need to start mixing things up. I'm still here in Southern California. Nick informed us. I think he's trying to raise the bar. So I know uh, several episodes ago, I was dealing with the slab leak at my house and there were power saws and power drills and people cutting into concrete. And so there you can hear Nick. Nick's, Nick's <laughs> I got, through some... I got, that's right. I got my dad about six feet above my head redoing our entire roof. So, you know, we'll hopefully he, yep. So it's not sure if you can hear that, but it's good. It should be an interesting session. I'll be on the mute for most of the time, but definitely yeah, got so, to be this time. And, and perfect. Here we go. We got people calling in as usual from all over. I love it. People from from many different countries. Uh, let's see, we've got Virginia, DC, Long Island. We have Tel Aviv, Pennsylvania, Chicago. We always have a lot of Chicago and Austin. We have uh, Uli from Germany. We've got Latvia, Philly, Canada. I know Vivian's in Canada. So we'll jump right in and introduce Vivian over here. But also we are doing a very, very special giveaway this week. And so Vivian has kindly said that she will, for whoever asks either the most or the best questions, Nick will be the determiner there. The winner will get a 30-minute session with Vivian, who offers consulting for D2C brands as well. So this is uh, this is very exciting. So as you guys can see here, we have Vivian Kay. She is the founder and CEO of Kinky Curly Yaki, which sells human hair extensions, clip-ins, ponytails, and puffs for Black women by Black women. She told me that I'm probably not her target market, so I view that as a challenge. And she's also our second Canadian speaker. We had Jay on a couple of weeks ago. So Vivian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Wait, where is Jay from? Because Canada's a really big country, but I might I should, know him. <laughs> yes, he lives in Toronto. Oh. And so, yes, I know Canada is a massive country, so oh. I should be very specific. And, and where, where in Canada are you again? I'm actually just outside of Toronto. Okay. So I'm halfway Perfect. between Toronto and you could say Niagara Falls. Okay, nice. And and I know Toronto also by itself is a is a massive city as well. Absolutely, I think yeah. What top five largest in North America and the most like diverse. Nice. So to jump into things, and we'll get into the nitty gritty of D 2 C and e commerce shortly. But to start off on a fun note, let's start off with the big hitting questions. Mm-hmm. Your your Twitter name, mm-hmm. doing all the chat things. <laughs> what, 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 what what does that mean? <laughs> What would Chad do? So let's start there. First of all, Chad isn't anyone specific. For me, Chad is, it's not meant to bash men, especially white men. It's not meant to minimize anyone's accomplishments. What it is, is Chad is an attitude. He's a mood. He's an energy. He's a mindset. So for me, what would Chad do is it's meant to help me immediately dismiss any self-limiting beliefs that pop into my head. 
especially as women and, and for me, especially as a black woman, sometimes we look at things like, um, you know, even if you're if you're applying for a job, if we only have or if I only have four out of the five qualifications, I immediately disqualify myself and say, I'm not qualified for that position. However, Chad, who is one of the most mediocre white dudes, you probably have, and you all, we all know a Chad. It's that guy that just has all the confidence in the world. He's doing stuff he has no business doing, but he's doing it anyways. And only because he has the audacity. So sometimes when I need to just dismiss any self-limiting beliefs that I have for myself, I ask myself, what would Chad do? (laughs) What would a white guy do in this position? He would do it. He would go for it. Who cares if I'm not qualified? I think I deserve that job or I deserve that money. I deserve that that funding. I'm going for it anyways. And he gets it. So why can't I do it? I've got the qualifications. I've got the charisma. I've got all that it takes. So I'm going to do what Chad does. I like that it's you're getting inspiration from an extremely ridiculous meme, but I think that there's a lot there just in the answer is no, unless you ask. And so it's, you know, putting, putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. And so, so I want to get back to that concept in a little bit, but another thing, again, we'll stay in the Twitter's Twitter vein. Oh, I say a lot of stuff on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Good. So something that Nick shared a while ago, And then a couple of weeks later, he's like, hey, you know, we've got to ask Vivian. Let's see if we can, if if she'd be open to, you know, joining us on operators is your start it tweet. And and I love it. I I could not agree more. It's just, just, just start it. And so if you want to maybe just give everybody like a little, and it looks like Nick, Nick dropped in her Twitter. You just want to give us a little bit more context on like what motivated your start it tweet. And then maybe lead that into like, why did you have to start kinky curly yaki? And then, you know, overcoming like, you know, any preconceived notions that you had there. Yeah, well, I'll just read the quote just so everyone just has an idea. So the quote just says, start it or sorry, the tweet says, start it. Just start, start small, start where you are, start and make mistakes, start with what you have, start with what you know, start despite whatever it is, start by taking the next step and then taking the next step after that. Just start, start now start it. So really what that's all about is I find with people who just, who have this idea, they think, you know, oh, you know what, if I could, I could solve this problem only if I did this. And why isn't anyone doing it? And then they get stuck. They get stuck with, they start overthinking. They start overanalyzing. They start thinking, well, someone's already doing it and I'm not going to do it any better. So why should I do it? But what you have to remind yourself is all those people started somewhere. I started somewhere. I, if you look up success in the dictionary, he does, that person does not look like me. Obviously, I'm a black woman. I live in Canada. I'm an immigrant because I was originally born in Ghana and then immigrated here to Canada. I am a college dropout and I'm a single mother. Yet I managed to build a business built off of solving my own problem and made over $6 million doing it. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But the only way I got to that point was by starting. I love that. And that's been a definitely a very consistent theme here. And it's something that we talk about a lot internally is, you know, you, you can't get to, let's say, point, point C without getting to point B first. And like, you just, you just have to take that first step. And worst case, it fails and you hopefully learn something and you can apply those learnings onto the next thing. Not and so in you that will day- learn something. You will learn mm-hmm. something. It doesn't, like, there's no hope. You will if you're doing it right. And 
I guess there it's applying those learnings so that you don't do that again, or the next time you do it slightly better. And so I'd actually love to hear some examples from you there in a minute, but just starting with kinky curly yaki, mm -hmm. which you said it was something that you launched to help yourself. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, we were able to build up a following in the community. What was the inspiration to start? I needed to solve a problem. I was running another business. So I was a wedding decorator in my previous life, and I wanted a protective style that looked like me. So what a protective style is, is the majority, a lot of us black women wear protective styles. So those are wigs, weaves, braids um, in order to protect our hair from this North American environment. Our hair is not suited to this environment. It gets, especially in the wintertime, it gets very dry. If you are manipulating it every day, it, it gets prone to breakage. Any black woman you see in popular culture, Oprah, Beyonce, Selena Williams, they're all wearing a protective style. So we choose to wear our hair just to make it easier on us. If you know any woman with curly hair, she'll probably tell you, oh, my God, it takes me three times the amount of times it takes for you to get ready in the morning because of her hair. Well, black women, 10 times that. So I wanted to wear a protective style that looked like my hair because I wanted to look, quote unquote, presentable. That's a whole other conversation <laughs> because, you know, black women, we're sort of um, we sort of there's this beauty standard that women have to live up to. And then there's a next level for black women. Uh, so in order to do that, a lot of us would put chemicals in our hair in order to chemically straighten it to mimic European looking hair. In about the early 2010s, we got tired of doing that shit. And we decided to start to wear our hair as it naturally grows out of our hair. So, of course, we wanted to start to protect it. And then what happens when I went looking for textures that mimicked my own hair, I couldn't find it. Or if I did find it, it was buried underneath the silkier textures. So then I thought, you know, why isn't anyone just selling kinky hair? So this is around 2011. But because I was running um, a wedding business that was already successful, six-figure wedding business, I thought, I don't need more headache. I just filed the idea in the back of my head. It wasn't until I went to a networking event and another Black woman came to me and asked me, this is while I was wearing uh, my own product or wearing the product. She asked me who my hairdresser was and what my regimen was for keeping my hair so healthy. And I was like, girl, this is a weave. And for black women, for another black woman to not know that you are wearing a protective style, that is the highest compliment that can be paid. <laughs> and so she said, I would buy that. And so I thought, wow, well, if she would buy it and I would buy it, there's got to be at least a dozen other women who would buy it too. So in the down season of that wedding business in, in December of 2012, I launched Kinky Curly Yaki. And now someone's asking, Dennis is asking in the comments, what was my capital to start it? I started with nothing. I literally took, if someone, I bought my own inventory, like I bought five SKUs. I had a Rubbermaid, I had this, this Rubbermaid bid behind me. I have um, one at home and it's white. And that's what I started my business in. And I just had five SKUs and I had put one piece of product in each of those drawers to make me feel like, you know, I was really running some inventory here. And someone would buy one product, I would take that profit and I would buy two. Someone would buy two, I would take that profit and buy four. And that's how I started my business. Unfortunately, I wasn't really, I didn't have access to the network or, um, you know, my parents didn't have money. Like it wasn't anything like that. I just had a problem, solved it and thought, well, the next logical step is let me just start a business and see what happens. And that's how it started. So you said the woman at the networking event didn't even know that what you were using. So did you partially manufacture your own product? 
Did you buy it from a third party? How did you start creating like the first iteration? So I sourced it from China. So what I did was because I was trying to solve my own problem, I was in the community. So I joined forums and hair, black hair care forums and black hair care Facebook groups. Because again, I was trying to solve my own problem. I didn't set out to start a business. And so then in those groups, people were sharing information like, okay, well, here's a vendor that does this. And it's like, okay, well, let me buy, let me ask this vendor or this particular factory for this particular product and see what happens. And so then I, I kept doing that with all the different vendors that they shared. And then in, of course, in doing my own research. So I did a lot of my own QA because I was trying to solve my own problem at first, right? Once I solved that problem, I thought, okay, well, this is good. It's good for me. I know how this is supposed to work and it's working the way it's supposed to work. I even asked them, you know, to tweak this a little bit, tweak that a little bit. I even did things like before I, I decided to start the business, I even would order under different names just to see if I could get the same quality. So I was running my own QA without realizing it was QA. And that's, that's basically how I started it. I just did my own, I rolled up my sleeves and did my own research. But what was really important was that I was my own customer. I got high on my own supply. So I knew what to look for. I knew what it should be doing. I knew what it shouldn't be doing. And that was really important to me to do because I didn't want to put my name. I didn't want to attach myself to something that was going to be garbage. So something I, I, that we're, I definitely want to dive into in a little bit, which is, you know, how you're able to scale without spending money on paid ads shortly. But a question mm. here from Dionza, and I'm going to add to it as well. Did you start selling online? Were you selling out of your trunk or with your example of your wedding business? You know, were you actually selling it, you know, to some of your customers there? How'd you, how'd you get started selling? No. So it's, it's funny because this was back in 2012. So e-commerce wasn't for you and I back then. It was just, you know, it, it was, but it wasn't as accessible as it is today. Um, I started online. I had a big cartel store. Uh, <laughs> I took pictures on my S3, my Samsung S3, um, <laughs> put those pictures up online and just started and just started that way. So I didn't. Uh, and this was I've always been like I've been on, on online since AOL was a CD. Right. You had to insert the CD into your, your CD-ROM <laughs> and, get, and, and get that, you know, that dial up noise. So I've <laughs> always been a friendly like I've always loved technology. So I'm always you know, trying new things. So I wasn't afraid to go online and start a business that way. I already knew how to run it in, you know, I, I guess, as you could say, as a brick and mortar. So this was my opportunity to sell it virtually. So that's how I started. How'd you get your first sale? The funny thing about my first sale, and I still remember her name is Tease. I still remember who the customer was, is I was in these Facebook groups. I had sent some hair to a girl that I knew for a fact wore kinky textured hair extensions. So at the time they weren't called influencers. I was just sending it to her because I wanted someone else's opinion. Like, okay, girl, I know you know you know what this how this hair is supposed to behave. Here, what do you think? Instead of telling me what she thought, she posted it on a, on a forum. And so then uh, once you posted on the forum, it was like that stamp of approval that the girl that's always wearing kinky hair is wearing this hair. So it must be good. So that's how I got my first customer. So basically, it was word of mouth. That's awesome. A question here from Lynn. So there are a lot of hair bundle business owners. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to differentiate yourself from others? I niched it. I niched it. I niched it. I niched it. I specifically focused on only kinky textured hair. Like this is my product right here. This is a drawstring ponytail, right? right? So, yeah, I fooled you. <laughs> I get high on my own supply, right? So... <laughs> um, <laughs> 
But yeah, no, I know Len Biggie Small says don't get higher on supply. But if you are selling a product, you need to know the ins and outs of the product. So you need to get high on it in order to live and breathe it because that's the only way I can genuinely sell it is if I believe in it. And I do. So I ha- I wear it at every opportunity that I can because it shows you that I, I mean, you, you're not necessarily buying the product, you're buying the person behind the product. So if mm-hmm. the person behind the product is is a believer in what they sell and they think it's the best thing since, since sliced bread and, and they're telling you why you should have it too, you're going to believe them and you're going to buy it. And I want to get back to, you know, the person behind the brand in, in a little bit as well. But the, I, I love that point there, which is, and I think a lot of people are, are worried where they're like, oh, this is too niche and the market's not big enough. And then they try to create something for everybody. And so they create something for nobody. And it's something that we do at ShipBob a lot as well, where it's like the, the business started off very niche. Like we help, we want to help every e-commerce you know, seller. Mm-hmm. But the only way we can do that is if we start very specified with the right customer, right? That first customer. Yep. And then we very methodically keep expanding what we do out there. And so talk me through that with, with your business. How have you started to expand out? And do you, or did you, are you still trying to be as niche as possible? Honestly, I'm trying, well, 2020 has been a different year, but up until (laughs) now, really, I just wanted to be the best at kinky, at kinky hair. So um, instead of going wide, I went deep, right? So that's the beauty of niche because you can niche, niche, however you want to pronounce it. Niche is something you can use to get your foot in the door, right? So if you come out blasting with, you know, let's just say you're just selling journals and you're just deciding you're just going to sell journals for the sake of selling journals. That doesn't make any sense. Who are you selling these journals to? So if you can get specific, I'm going to sell journals, leather bound journal, leather bound, no wait, vegan yellow journals that have positive messages for entrepreneurs. You are speaking to a very specific group of people. And guess what? When you talk to those people and you speak in their language, they're immediately like, shut up and give me and, and take my money. Because you're speaking directly to them, mm-hmm. right? But if you just, I'm just going to sell journals and you're selling to everyone. It's like lighting a match in a windstorm and thinking it's going to stay lit. No, you use niche to get your foot in the door, to get those raving fans. It's cheaper to market to a very specific group of people. So you're not advertising to everybody and their mother. And then you can focus. You can really, really zone in on what your business is about. Whereas if you're advertising to everyone and you're speaking to everyone, like you said, you're speaking to no one. Amazon mm-hmm. started out at selling books, right? They got really, 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 really good at selling books. And then they took it and and applied it to everything else. Amazon is the exception (laughs) to this rule, right? So use niche as a way to get your foot in the door. You can either go deeper, which is what I did. So I started out with just carrying wefted hair. So wefted hair is what people, what black women use for weaves. So we sew it into our hair. And then I moved into clip-ins, and then I moved into ponytails and then I moved into wigs. So I got deeper in the niche. I just got more versatile with the with the textures. I could go wider, which is what I'm I'm going to do because of COVID. You know, now I'm gonna go, okay. So wider would mean I'm I'm creating hair products to care for my hair extensions. I'm creating hair accessories to go with my hair extensions. But I'm still speaking to the same group of people because I have established trust in my target demographic. So now they know if I go and sell other things to them, they we already have an understanding. Okay, they were really good at hair extensions. They're probably going to be good at this. So I'm going to buy into that. So that's the point of niching. I love that where you're not expanding necessarily who your customer base is. You're expanding what you can provide to them because 
one person might want the extension, one person might want a clip in. And then of course there's the ancillary products. I, I love that. It's just such a, like, a, I think a different way than a lot of people do where they just start to expand like, okay, well now we'll get, you know, we'll add in this segment or another group. So no, it's cheaper to keep her. It's cheaper to keep those, to keep those same customers that you already have than it is to go out and acquire new ones. So if you can just sell more, why not? And so on that note, and you mentioned earlier, you said raving fans. And so here's something from Medell, which is, how did you start creating that like brand awareness or community? So the funny thing is back in 2012, 2013, personal branding wasn't a thing. So I, I basically started the company, but didn't tell anyone I was behind it. So I was in these forums and in these, in these Facebook groups, but no one knew who owned the company. And in our particular space, the black beauty space, a lot of companies are not owned by black women. So we don't own our own beauty. And so then what happened was, you know, because it immediately took off, like in the first year, I did just under half a million. And this was someone who didn't know what she was doing. And someone decided I didn't put the who is protection on my website. So someone decided that they wanted to they created a fake profile on Facebook to out me on Facebook. And when they did that, when people found out that it was my company, they were like, well, all the more reason to buy it, to buy from this company. So from that point on. I decided to use that as a differentiator because a lot of companies that are in the hair extension hair extension market are Chinese owned, whereas at the time there weren't a lot of black owned companies. So then I decided to put myself at the forefront so that my customers could see that I was like them, that I understood their struggles. I understood their pain points and I addressed them. I'd be like, girl, I understand. You know, you did that twist out last night, hoping to have some bomb, some bomb twists when you're going for that job interview, but that didn't happen. So, you know what? Hey, girl, I got a wig for you. Just put this, just put this on. They're not going to notice and go get that job. Why did you not put your name and face out there to start? I, at the time, I didn't think I needed to. I didn't need to. But then what happened was I had um, in the middle of building this business, I had a baby and I went on a lat leave. And when I came back, all these Chinese companies had popped up. But they were what they were doing was they were getting black girl influencers to front the companies, but no one could tell mm -hmm. them who was behind the company. So I was like, well, how can I differentiate myself from the people who are copying me? Oh, I know. I'm going to put myself at the forefront. I'm going to show my customers who I am and tell them why I started this business and why I started it for you, for so us. You just, so you mentioned in your first year you did 500K. I know it was with, with no paid ads. That was before you know Instagram was a thing, mm -hmm. uh, or at least ads. How did you, how were you able to generate that? It was all through word of mouth and through Facebook groups. So it was all organic. It was your active participation or you were helping other people promote it? You know, how, how did no, you No, it was that? my active. So it was my active. So what happened is, you know, pictures were going up. People were posting because they had heard about this new company because everyone wants to try that new, new. They heard about this new company and the quality was good. One of the things I also did to differentiate myself is I washed the hair because one of the things that was happening was people would buy kinky textured hair extensions. And when it would arrive, it wouldn't look like the pictures. So one of the things mm. I did to differentiate myself was to wash the hair so that when they did get it, it looked exactly like the pictures that they saw online. So I would always do things to differentiate myself from the other, from my competitors or from people who were, who were doing something similar. Do you still wash your, wash all the hair? Before no, you that was not okay. a scalable thing, but what yeah. it did was that it helped to establish my reputation. It helped to establish the type of quality that I was selling because kinky hair is notoriously known as difficult hair. And so then by my, well, I think we washed it for, I've been in business for eight years. We washed it for a good three years. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so, it's a long time. And I like that too, or, I mean, that's, you know, relatively common advice, but, you know, starting and doing some things that don't scale in, in order to scale. And that's what helped put you guys on the map. That's exactly. what built your reputation. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take those first steps, you can't get to the next step. So, you know, we spoke about you funding this on your own at the beginning. And here's another question from um, Adele, which is, how are you able to grow the business without capital? And then a question I have on top of that is, you're ordering from overseas. And so people are placing their orders. It takes time to like put in those purchase orders, to receive the inventory, to ship, to pick, pack, ship it. How are you able to you know, shrink that time and, and run your business at the beginning? Well, I ran very lean. For the first four years, I did everything myself from answering emails to ordering the inventory, to packing the orders, to dropping them off at the post office. I did everything by myself until, and then like six months later, after I hired my first person, I hit my first million. But I did, I ran lean. I did everything that I could. I learned everything that I could. I wasn't afraid to roll up my sleeve, do stuff and learn stuff. And that's, that's how I did it. But I, and I was actually, I guess, ignorant. I didn't realize I could go to the bank and get money. But you know what the bank was doing? The bank was, would call me up and say, where's all the, cause I'm in Canada and I, and I accept us dollars. So then instead of asking me what to do, how we, can we help you grow your business? They were just asking me where all the us dollars was coming from. Like, what are you doing with all this money? Where's it going? Why are you, why are you sending it to China? What are they doing with it? Right. But I literally did not realize that I could use other people's money to grow my business. I just was doing it the way I knew how which was, you know, the snowball was, you know, it started up at the top and it was rolling. I was just, let me just, let me just run with it. I don't know how I'm going to figure it out, but I did. Did the bank ever freeze your money or, or ask anything? Cause they saw, no. Such, no, no, I remember at the beginning, PayPal was sort of like, what are you doing? And I'm like, this is what I'm doing. They were like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, just, I love that. I've been lucky. I've been lucky. I've had businesses where I've sold digital products. This was years ago. And you're trying to explain to the payment processor, how you're selling like this digital item. And they just, they all of a sudden they bucket you in like the vices category. And I'm like, no, no, I'm selling like education. This is not a problem. And they froze, they froze all my funds for like six Ugh. months. Well, I remember when I first, because I joined Shopify in 2015. And I remember at first um, I was using Shopify payments and then they kicked me off because hair extensions at the time, well, still is, is a high fraud product. So if you're, you know, along with porn and all those other stuff, hair extensions is right there. <laughs> mm. And so then for the longest time we weren't, I was, I could only use, I forget what the name of the company is, but I could only use a third party processor in order to process our payments just because of the nature of my business. But it was difficult. But what to answer your question on how I actually scaled it, I I literally, I literally would people would I priced it accordingly. So I looked at my costs and you know, I, I ran it out of my house, I ran it lean, I looked at how much it cost to acquire it and then how much it cost me to run the business, and then I priced it accordingly. And then I would just take that money and turn it around and buy more inventory with it. So I didn't pay myself up until I think I started paying myself in maybe 2017. Were you still running the wedding business at the same yeah, time? Yeah, so I ran I was running the wedding business concurrently, but then it wasn't until I think mid 2016 that um I decided because I had my son and I was tired of doing both. And this was a business that, uh, no, sorry, 2015. So 2000, I had my son in 2014. Sorry, bit of mommy brain here. <laughs> my business, mid-2015, I'd sold off Vivian's decor to run business full-time because I saw what it was doing. I was like, because I went back and looked, oh shit, I just did half a million dollars and I was doing that half ass. So imagine if I put my <laughs> full ass into it, right? And <laughs> so then I so then I dropped the first business to focus on Kinky Curly Yaki the first uh, full-time. Then by June of 2016, I hired my first employee. And what I had her come in and do was fulfillment. 
I was really good at doing customer service because I knew my customers, but I didn't want to pack the stuff anymore. So I hired someone to do that. Six months after that, I hit my first million. That's awesome. So single mom running multiple businesses, you've got your e-commerce business taking off. You're a solopreneur. How did you, how do you approach prioritization? (laughs) First of all, you can't have it all. (laughs) Your, your priorities will be different at different points of your business in your life period. Right. So I know for the first I want to say five or six years of my business, all I focused on was my business and my baby. That was all I focused on. So everything else didn't matter to me. I just focused on building my business and building and doing my baby or doing my baby, (laughs) raising my baby. And so then um, that's all I focused on. And so once I got someone to work in the business, I could work on the business. So then that's when I started to focus more on influencer marketing. And that's when I started to pay attention to SEO, not SEO, to uh, paid ads and email marketing. So I didn't do any of that until 2017, but I'd already hit my first million before I even did that. So, So you mentioned influencer marketing. And so it sounds like, you know, at the beginning through the Facebook groups, you were just kind of organically doing influencer marketing and trying to help from and learn from others who, who naturally had reach. And so, you know, you were doing what everybody talks about today, mm-hmm. like almost by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like when ignorance is bliss or it mm-hmm. actually can be, be a positive. And so from a question from Camille is she's wondering on what your approach to influencer marketing is and how that's changed over the years. And I'd I'd love to know on like your view of just like the landscape in general too. The landscape in general today is, (laughs) it's interesting. (laughs) I remember like the girls that I used to work with, we were both really focused on building our brands and, and building reputations for ourselves. So, you know, I would give them a product and they would take it and make so much content from it and they would do it knowing that they were building an audience. But what I'm finding now is people just want stuff for the sake of having stuff and to say they worked with that brand and then they move on. So I'm not too happy with the current landscape of influencer marketing. I would love for it to be more of a relationship, like long-term relationship focused way of marketing. It's not like that anymore, at least from my experience. Um, And that's only because a lot of my competitors, especially the ones from overseas, have commoditized the product. So instead of making it like this is something that, you know, it's an investment and it's something that you, you know, you're investing in your looks and your confidence and all that, they've just made it into a throwaway thing. So it, that's what it's become in the influencer space. So right now I'm, I'm trying to push for more UGC. So with the user generated mm. content so that people can see it's real people wearing it as opposed to, you know, someone that, you know, is going to be wearing my hair today and someone else's hair tomorrow. I like that. And that's what Paul and Lisa BK Beauty spoke about as well is you don't view these relationships as transactional, but think about, you know, building it for the long term. And so when you, when you talk about UGC and then the content they're creating, which channels are you focused on mostly and, and how has that changed over time? Mostly on Instagram, but now the algorithm's really gotten in the way. So it's been interesting there. We've just been, and especially for this year, we're, I'm pretty sensitive to what's going on because the majority of my customers are in the US and you know they sort of range the whole, even though we have a specific target people, a target demographic in mind, it's basically available for any black woman that wants to wear protective style. So I'm also very sensitive to what's going on with the current climate, right? Some people are out of work and it's not, the products that I sell are not cheap. It's a premium product. And so I'm very sensitive to that. You mentioned it's a premium product Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of overseas sellers that are trying to commoditize what you're selling. So as you continue to look to to differentiate, how have you doubled down on brand 
to separate yourself from these, you know, Amazon, more commodity type sellers? Um, so I, I creating more content. So not necessarily I, filling the top of the funnel, right? So filling the top of the funnel by creating content, um, you know, blog articles and uh, doing things like uh, getting people on to make videos, just explaining the process and, you know, education. So educate our consumers to know why we're priced, how we're priced and the difference between what they're doing and what we're doing. And to reinforce the whole branding, me, uh, that I am the customer. I am you, girl. I understand your pain point. So we're doubling down on that. We're focusing, we're also starting to focus more on places like Pinterest. We love Instagram where it's, you know, that's the original visual marketing platform. But now Pinterest is up and coming. So it's something that we can look at as well to help grow our customer base organically. So with putting yourself front and center, what do you think are some of like the best things that you've done to expand the brand by, by utilizing yourself? I've shown that I'm a real person. If there's one thing that I've always sort of, I've always fought, I've had imposter syndrome since starting this business, because a lot of, if you look at, um, especially in the hair extension space, it's a lot of women who are girl bosses. I hate that term, but you know, they've got, they've got the look, they're skinny, they're this, they're married, they're, you know, they've got their shit together. They've got Louboutins and a Gucci purse. And I'm the opposite of that. I, I, you know, still shop at the dollar store and I'm not ashamed of that. So I, I make, I, I make myself readily available to my audience to let them know that I am, I am human. Like one of my highest performing or one of my highest engaging emails is a plain text email that just says, hey, girl, thank you. I really appreciate you supporting my business. I am a black woman. I am like you. You're supporting my family, supporting some binary company that you don't know where they're from and what they do. If you want to DM me, you can. I make myself more accessible to to make my products more accessible. A lot of people go to Instagram to start because it's easy just to start throwing money at Instagram. You can start getting those transactions coming in, but then you also, to an extent, are on, let's say, the paid the paid media treadmill because it's tough to get off that and say, well, now I want to grow slower and think longer. So, you know, you fortunately didn't have that ability to do that because Instagram ads didn't exist. Obviously, paid ads did. What would be your advice for people that are, you know, just getting started or maybe launched in like the last year or so? And just like how to approach it, you know, going slower and maybe not throwing all your money at paid ads. You know, any suggestions there? SEO. SEO is a long-term strategy. It's not something you can do in the, you know, something that'll work overnight, like, you know, a paid ad. But SEO, um, if you're on Shopify, Shopify makes it very easy for you to do your own SEO. So that's one thing. And then content. And don't overthink the content. <laughs> like you could, if your product is journals, then it could be content like how to journal. And then you're going to take that one piece of content and you're going to repurpose it. You're going to create a blog article. It's like how to journal. You're going to create a video of you opening up your journal, how to journal. You're going to voice it over to make it video content because video is also king. Um, you're going to create an Instagram post of the different journals of, you know, different pictures of journals. And then you're going to put that in the caption of how to journal. Then you're going to put an image on Pinterest, how to journal. Like, don't be afraid to explain your product like you're five, because there are five-year-olds out there who need to know about the product. They're afraid to ask the dumb questions. So answer those dumb questions. So when people Google that dumb question, they're going to find answering that question. And guess who they're going to buy from? The person who answered the dumb question. I love that. Here's a more tactical question from Bridget. And, you know, we'll go zoom up more on the supply chain. So when you're just getting started, how did you find manufacturers that would sell to you in smaller quantities? 
in our space, usually those big manufacturers have smaller storefronts, for lack of a better term. So you can buy those smaller quantities. That's how I started. But if you're in any other, you know, any other sort of niche or product, I would say order a sample. Order a sample of that product. It's going to cost a lot more than, you know, if you had bought 300 of them, but buy, invest in that one product. So that one you can touch, you can feel, you can ask them, okay, can you make these changes? And then go from there. And then you can negotiate with them. Don't be afraid to negotiate because like Chad, it doesn't hurt to ask. The worst they can say is no. And I trust and trust me, there's more than one of them. So you can't just, you know, put all your eggs in one bucket or one basket for one manufacturer or one supplier. And keep doing that until you find someone that will work with you. How has the receptiveness to your asks evolved over time as your order quantities have increased? Well, one of the things, so I needed to scale Black Friday. So I remember in Black Friday 2017, again, didn't realize this was Shopify Capital didn't exist for us because they just literally launched it in Canada. And then when even when I went to the bank, the bank was like, you do business online. I don't understand how that works. So anyways, I didn't really have access to traditional forms of of capital. So then what I did was I'd formed a relationship with my factory and I needed, I know, and I saw from previous years on Black Friday, people were only buying when I had the stuff in stock. So then I thought, well, how can I get this stuff in stock and how can I get my supplier to be flexible? Just because again, high fraud, high, whatever in, in my space. So then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to China. I'm going to go and meet the supplier because I understand the culture. The culture is if you meet someone, you become their friend, like they have more respect for you. So I said, I'm going to China. So I flew to Qingdao. I met with the supplier. I went to their factory. They took me out for dinner. I wooed them. And then I brought a, a screenshot or I printed out a screenshot from my previous Black Friday. I said, this is what I did in one day. I can guarantee I can double that if you send me the inventory and then I'll pay you the day after. And they said, okay. I love that. <laughs> that is awesome. Get on, get on a plane. Get on a plane. I mean, not right now, but. Well, not right now, but, you know. Get on a plane. Because sometimes the ask on it by email is, you know, they can easily say no, but it's harder to say on face. How long did you spend in China on the trip? I was there for about six five or six days. Everyone thought I was Oprah. So that was great. <laughs> yeah. I was like, <laughs> people were taking pictures with me and, you know, t- secretly, you know, taping me on the, on the subway and all that. But yeah, no, it was, it was one of the best decisions, like the best thousand dollars that I spent on a plane ticket because that's, that's it, abs- it changed the trajectory of my business. Like it helped push me over the million dollar mark because now I created this and this is not, and it's not something that happens in this particular niche is getting that credit. Mm -hmm. is to get them to send you the inventory before you give them the money. Well, I love that too, because the amount of money and time you would have spent to get the capital or the credit anyways would have probably cost you over $1,000. And here now you're developing that long-term relationship with your manufacturer. So since you did that, how has your relationship with them evolved? And have you still been able to negotiate better, let's say like net payment terms and stuff like that? Yes and no, only because... You know, this is me. This is me being thinking old school. I don't like owing people money. (laughs) So I'm always like, if I don't have it, I won't order it type thing. Right. So I always make sure that, you know, what I'm the order that I'm placing, I can indeed sell it. Right. So I've used stuff like um, inventory planner, like other apps to help me predict and forecast what type of inventory that I'm buying. So I'm not overbuying. Right. So um, I do it strategically uh, only because, 
the nature of it's not like a traditional like the hair extension market is such a like there's no regulatory board like there's nothing regulating it right so you have to tread very carefully and to make sure that basically it's this it's one-on-one with this one guy and, and he makes sure I make sure I pay him and he makes sure to send me good product. And we've been, ha- we've been in this relationship for the past eight years. Wow. That's That's a long time. Yeah. Congrats on that. Yeah. So something I noticed on your website, both in the main nav and then at the bottom is, is your loyalty program. And here's a question from Dionza, which is, do you have a brand ambassador program? Which it seems like the answer there is yes. And so if you maybe just Talk we to did actually. That. We did. Okay. We did. But again, it was starting to turn into a transaction. I, I don't know. I have a thing about trans being slowly transactional. Like so then I started to we started onboarding these brand ambassadors that were just simply, you know, wearing the thing once and then making 200 bucks on it and then disappearing. And that is sort of contradictory to our product. So we actually have a really low, I guess you could say a low LTV, so the the lifetime customer because our our products are so good. So we don't have customers coming back every three months or six months. They'll come back maybe every a year or every two years. And so we want that to be reflected in our brand ambassadors, right? Like if they're wearing one product this week and then wearing someone else's product that week, then in the eyes of the customer, what was wrong with that first product you wore, right? So I had to sort of put a stick a pin in that brand ambassador stuff because of that. However, I would like, I'm hoping once everything sort of, I'm hoping by September, everything sort of levels out to ask my customers to be those brand ambassadors because those mm-hmm. are my those are the best those again those raving fans are my best uh, customers right so I, I love that where you're really aligning your marketing message with like the message of the brand which is you don't want people it's not the new flavor of the week it's no this is my product and i use it for the next year or two years so what about your your loyalty program and so there you know that seems like that might be a, a way to kickstart or increase, you know, these, these customer brand advocates that you have, but how was launching the loyalty program and and how has that worked out for you? It's been good. It's been good. It's not something that we particularly focus on because I, I, what I, what we started to notice is our best customers don't use discounts. They don't use loyalty. Like they don't care about that stuff. They just Mm -hmm. want their good hair and they don't mind supporting my brand in order to do that. So um, it's not something that we we particularly focus on, although it is something in our Q4 to just sort of ramp up. But it's not something that we that we really focus on. It's just there for people who are tied to that type of stuff. But it's not something we focus on. Well, I love that too, and that speaks to your brand, where it's you're you're creating these again rabid fans, and and they'd rather support and, and especially by putting yourself front and center, they want to support you and your business. I think another thing that's difficult or maybe I'm just, you know, self-projecting something that I think about a lot is is staying true to the brand and mm. staying true to the brand is like the business evolves. So, you know, mm-hmm. you started off where you were more or less posting in Facebook forums and now you've built like a much larger following and you're doing millions of dollars. How have you been able to like stay true to like a specific brand and like the brand voice? It's been tough, especially as, you know, competition comes in, they have more money to do those paid ads, so they're using my brand name in their their keywords. So it's been tough. And especially now that it's, I feel like it's a new generation coming up, like with the TikToks and the this, and it's like, oh, I can't keep up. So I just stick to what I know and I'm, I'm willing to be flexible. Like I brought in and I brought in a team to run the social media because maybe, maybe my voice has sort of, uh, it's not the same because now they're used to seeing millennials doing most of the talking, whereas I'm known as Aunt Viv, right? As <laughs> their Aunt Viv, right? So well, I think, you know, just like if, you know, if people follow you on Twitter, as you can tell from like hearing you today, 
you, you keep it very personable. Mm -hmm. And as you can even see in like the chats, so Lynn, unless you know Lynn, in se several of the chats, she calls you Viv. And <laughs> my guess is you guys haven't met before. No. And so like, I think that speaks volumes of like, you know, you're trying to get people to like a personal, personal level because it's like you built this to support yourself and then to support your child. And then, you know, you continue to grow, support your employees and support your community. So I think, I think that's huge. You mentioned again, the, the lower LTV because people buy your product once, you know, every one, two years or however it may be, but you're going to start introducing these ancillary products like the shampoos, which obviously you can run out of. And there's more of like a replenishment and get more on that, like let's say the subscription model. So talk me through, you know, those are very new products for you. How, how are you approaching that? I'm approaching it the way I approached the hair extension business. So, you know, I'm buying different, different formulas. I'm working with different factories. I'm using it on my products. I'm using it on myself to see what it does, what it doesn't do, what it needs to do more of. Uh, I'm taking the same approach, um, except I'm, I'm working a bit smarter this time around because I know better. But yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly what we plan to do with it is to turn it into a subscription product where, you know, even if like we could box it up as a, you know, every quarter will send you new hair with new product to take care of the, to take care of the product. So that's the direction we're moving into. And as you expand the product line, here's a question from Medell is, did you trademark your name? Mm. And if so, I'm assuming you're just reading exactly what her question so, is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe I believe his son is He's on, in the uh, upside on Zoom down. right at this um, moment. <laughs> so uh, I tried to trademark Kinky Curly Yaki. However, there is a hair product company, like a hair care product company called Kinky Curly, which is part of the reason why I chose Kinky Curly Yaki, because it already sounded familiar. And if you're a black woman who wears protective styles, you understand what yaki is. But anyways, I was unable to trademark Kinky Curly Yaki. However, I was able to trademark my texture names. So one of the other things that I saw is I was using a particular set of tech names for our textures and the Chinese owned company started to copy that. So I was like, well, how can I get them to stop copying me? Oh, I'm going to trademark them. So I created I created names for my textures and trademark them. So is it worth doing? It depends on the product. For me, um, because it's more attached to my brand, because I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. It's not like I invented hair extensions. I didn't invent this product, but I built the brand behind it. So really, if you're interested in protecting the brand and your reputation, then yes, you should trademark it. But it's not cheap. So it's not, you know, it's, uh, for me, I think it was like $1,500 per trademark plus the lawyer fee, right? But for me, it was worth it because again, because I sell a premium product and I'm a black owned company, I wanted to own that. So a question there on the trademark thing. So you, you mentioned the cost, you know, let's say $1,500 plus or minus with lawyer fees. What about from like a time perspective? Like how much, like how time intensive was it for you? It took about, a, I would say just under a year to do. So, you know, we had, we did the back and forth because I, I tried to file them all at the same time. So Kinky Curly Yaki plus the the texture names, hmm. texture names, they didn't have a problem with. And then it was the back and forth. So we had to do the back and forth on my brand name. Would I go on Fiverr and hire someone? No, I would not. <laughs> yeah, you could pay way less, but I don't know. You get what you pay for because if someone comes to contest my brand, or contest the name, I have a lawyer that can, who knows exactly what happened. They can go contest it, but you like it. I love it. I have another question where we end, how we end all of these. First though, I do want to say thank you very much. I know you, you're very busy. You've got a lot going on. So for you to take the time, it's very much appreciated. 
as always, thanks to Nick for, for having us here and for all the guests for, for joining us. Um, as always, we'll be here uh, next, next Wednesday at 3 o'clock Eastern. But to close this out, Vivian, what is your number one tip for entrepreneurs today? I would say take big little steps. So what that means is being an entrepreneur. I mean, if you're in it for the long run, it is not a, it is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So you have to do those things, you know, step, you have to take everything step by step, day by day, all that shit that you don't want to do, you got to do day in and day out. Oh, I have a bonus one. It's all about being consistent. Being an entrepreneur is about consistency. You're not going to be motivated every day. And that's where these big little steps come in. Cause the things that you're doing every single day, eventually you get to the, like I hit that first million. I didn't, and didn't even realize I'd hit it because I'd taken all these little steps to get there. And when I turned around, I'd done it. But did I want to do it? No, <laughs> no. But, you know, be, being an entrepreneur is not a sprint. It's a marathon. You you know, you got to do all those little things every single day. Like for a marathon, what do you do? You you get out of bed, you set the alarm, you go to sleep, you wake up, you turn off the alarm, you put your shoes on, you go out the door, you start by walking, you start by jogging, you start by sprinting. And that's how and that's you just build it up. And that's exactly what the entrepreneurial journey is, except there's hills and valleys and roller coasters and and tornadoes and <laughs> and all that. But you know what? It's worth the ride. Once you cross that finish line, like once you've gone through all that adversity and you've persevered, it makes it even sweeter. Thank you so much. And, and everyone again for, for joining us for the 21st episode of the Operator Series. There were so many questions I couldn't keep track. I had a nice document going, but that's that's fantastic. <laughs> this, this is the most questions we've ever received. We'll follow up with the, the winner of the one-on-one session uh, with Vivian. But again, thank you everyone for attending and we'll be back here next week at 3 p.m. Uh, with another guest speaker. Thank you. But, Have a good day, everyone. Follow me on Instagram. Same name. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. a joy there. <laughs> <laughs>